Uh, lunchtime today, uh, I have the pleasure of helping to baptize my neighbor in the sea at Felixstowe. So I'm hoping that you'd excuse me if at the end of this service I rush off a little quicker than usual. They're delaying their service so that I can make it there just about. If you're anxious to talk to me today, then uh, have a word with Katie. I will be back this evening as well uh, for the gathering. But would you excuse me if I uh, race towards the sea? I can't think of anything more pleasant than standing uh, waist high in uh, uh, the North Sea other than to baptize uh, my neighbor that's come to Christ. So all in a good cause. And uh, uh, look forward to that. We're, we're on the journey, and uh, let's pray together as we just come to those words and uh, what Jesus might be saying to us through his life and through his spirit this morning. Lord, would you open up our hearts and our minds? We want to see you, we want to hear from you, because we sense the call to be like you. Would you help us? Would you comfort us? Would you challenge us? Would you inspire us? Would you do what only you can do in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You'll see from the themes that we're spending uh, several weeks now, three weeks on Jesus' three years of public ministry. Jesus began his public ministry when he was about 30 years of age. And apart from a lot of detail about his birth that we're familiar with because of Christmas time, we're told very little about him until aged 30. These are often referred to as the years of obscurity for obvious reasons. We know that at about age two, he fled as a refugee to Egypt in order to avoid being killed by Herod, who wanted to kill every male boy to and under in order to protect his own kingship. We know that they later went back to Nazareth where Jesus grew like a normal boy, as it were, in wisdom and so on. And that's where they settled down. We know that he went through the Jewish stages of growing up and went back to the temple on one such trip. We'll recall he got left behind for three days, no less. And he was found there speaking to the religious authorities. His parents must have been beside themselves. Just one job, said God, look after him. And they lost him. We may go on to deduce or best understand that he would have followed his father's trade and worked as a carpenter in his father's carpenter shop in and around the community of Nazareth. Have you ever thought that daily Jesus would have handled wood and nails and a hammer? Have you thought about that? What went through his mind as he picked those tools up and used those materials? He knew what it was like to do a a daily job. He presumably knew what it was like to lose his father. We're told nothing more of Joseph. We presume that no mention of him means that at some point he died during those years of obscurity. What is clear though is that Jesus had family and had a normal job and grew up in a normal community and did the kind of normal things that we would do. So very early on we see him at a, at a local wedding, a wedding of, at Cana, where he'd been invited along with other guests including some of his disciples. But we pick up the story now today where it's a little clearer about how Jesus spent his time when he began his public ministry. And we're thinking 
the first year, and I want to just highlight three aspects of that first year of Jesus' ministry as it began to get underway. The first I'm calling the transition. The transition. Preparing the way for Jesus' ministry was his cousin, John the Baptist, who incidentally shares a middle name with Winnie the Pooh. John is portrayed as a very charismatic preacher. He's into what's right and what's wrong. He's full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He had no hesitation to speak out against the evils of his day. And he called people to a change of life. He called people to repent and to show their repentance by being baptized in the River Jordan. His job was to point people to Jesus. And this was his message. After me, one will come, more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. One so powerful, I'm not even worthy to do the job of a, of a servant for this one who is coming. John's ministry was busy and successful. Many were flocking to him and being baptized. They, they described it on times that the of the Judean countryside, even Jerusalem itself would come out to be part of what John was doing. It was in the, 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 the uh, sort of prime of his ministry. And then in the middle of that, it's our first glimpse of Jesus. Our first impression. The image perhaps that will always be remembered. Where is he? What's he doing when we first see him? incomprehensibly, unimaginably, our first glimpse of Jesus is of him in a queue, waiting with sinners to be baptised. We find him standing shoulder to shoulder with those who knew they hadn't made the grade. Lining up with those that knew they hadn't measured up, that felt convicted for their sin, that knew they needed a change of life, a change of heart. He stands with those who've fallen short. Our very first glimpse of Jesus. And we see him standing with you and with me. The people who knew they needed a change. The people who knew there were things they needed cleansing from. That there was stuff that, that they needed washing away. You see, Jesus identifies with us right at the beginning. You can imagine John's reaction when he sees Jesus. In fact, in Bible ways, it says he flips out. No way! I'm not baptizing you. You need, you need uh, to be where I am. I need to be in that queue. There's no way I'm doing this. And we read about it in John's Gospel. John tried to deter Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you and, and you come to me. This moment captures so much. It's all wrong. Jesus standing on the side of the sinner. Jesus being baptized with those who haven't made the grade, haven't got it right. Jesus in our place. Jesus where I should stand. No wonder John freaked out. He hadn't expected that. The only Bible these people knew was the Old Testament. And they knew all about substitution. They knew all about someone or something being substituted. Someone or something taking their place. Every day in the temple, every altar, every sacrifice was about substitution. Something standing 
or someone standing in their place, something being offered on their behalf. And as quick as a flash, John the Baptist links all these together and he says, we can read about it in John's Gospel, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lambs were perfect and without defect. Then they were sacrificed on behalf of, as a substitute for the worshipper to deal with their sin. John says, look, the Lamb, the perfect Lamb of God, who is already standing, taking our place. The one who will not just stand in the Jordan and take our place, but the one who will hang on a cross on our So we're only a few verses in to the New Testament. And it's all there, isn't it? The whole gospel in just those few moments. We see why he came. We see what he will do. So later they would write, God would make him who had no sin, the perfect lamb, to be sin for us, to stand in our place, to be substituted for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But there's more going on here. And one of the things I hope you, you, you understand about the Bible as we've journeyed through it is that there's always more going on than you think. The Jewish writers were brilliant at saying this, but winking about that and nudging about this. The nuance is, is brilliant. So much more going on. You see, Jesus identifies with us, but we find ourselves identifying with John. Let me explain. John has a huge dilemma. There is a huge revival going on in the Judean countryside. The religious, the educated are left standing as this camel-haired, locust-eating weirdo, full of the Holy Spirit, is calling people to repentance and they're listening to what God is saying through him. John, on every level, is a success. He's made something of himself. His identity, his popularity, his sense of worth and value, if he's anything like us, is probably caught up in so much of what he is doing in those moments. So for a long time I've admired him. Because he faces the choice, the same choice, the same dilemma as we do. He is challenged by the same question that we are challenged by. Is Jesus Lord? You see, John had spoken all his life about the one who was coming, who was the Lord. He had built his message around Jesus, the one who he's not even worthy to tie his sandals. But we all know that to say something, even to preach something, is a long way from actually doing it. When the crunch comes, it can be very different. It's easy to say Jesus is Lord until I feel it challenging something personal, demanding something that's at the heart of who I am. Will John walk the talk when the moment arrives? Will he live what he's led others to believe? That Jesus is supreme and unsurpassed, whatever the personal cost. So look what happens in John chapter 1 and verse 35. John's in the middle of leading the successful mission. He's just baptized Jesus. Things could not get any better. The crowds and the disciples are flocking around him. And then we read. 
The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, and this is the second time, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. John stands and watches his own disciples, those he'd loved and nurtured, those he'd cared for, those he'd eaten with, laughed with, cried with, watched as those who followed him now followed another. Does John kick and scream? Does he stamp and shout? The Bible says no, he watches them go. His job done. It's all about Jesus. Let's not underestimate the caliber of John in these moments. We know that sooner or later the crowds too that once followed John would start following Jesus. Some of John's disciples that are left start saying to John, John, we've got to do something about this. Before long, there'll be nobody left. They're all following Jesus now. All the disciples have gone. The crowds are going, come on, John, we've got to sort this out. We're losing it here. John's reply is brilliant in John chapter 3. A man can only receive what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Tremendous words of surrender and acceptance. Is this some kind of enforced uh, recognition, resignation that, that John knew that one day this would happen? Not at all. He says, my joy is, is complete. This is the moment I've lived for, I've longed for, I've worked for. I take joy from Jesus being lifted up, even if it means that I am being laid low. So do you see, we identify with John because each day Jesus comes to us with his agenda, with his mission, the one who it is always all about and he comes to us and he says, will you give yourself to me? Even if it means laying aside the things that brought you success. Even if it means laying aside the things that make you popular, giving up those things in which you place your identity. Will you lay it all aside? Is it really all about Jesus? That's the daily decision, isn't it? Will I lay it all for Jesus? Will I let him take the place of greatest honour, whatever impact that makes on my life? As I think about the spirit and the heart and the, the joy of John in those moments, it's a beautiful thing. No wonder Jesus said there's no one greater than John the Baptist. He understood what we all need to understand. So in this opening scene, we have the complete gospel. You see that? We have what Jesus came to do. We have the only way that we should respond. And it's all there in these opening verses. So in this first year of Jesus' life, first aspect then is the transition. Second aspect is the temptations. 
Now, over the years, we've probably heard a lot more uh, about this aspect of Jesus' ministry beginnings than the other two that we'll mention uh, this morning. One that we've mentioned, one that we will mention. So we're just going to move on almost in passing. Suffice to say that Jesus was tempted around appetites, ambitions, and authority. In other words, he was tempted in kind of every way. That more or less covers everything. And you ready for a big cheer? Jesus conquered where I so often fail. Well, that's it. And that's really important. That's really important. Because if Jesus failed where I fail, he couldn't save me, could he? So that's really important. The writers are setting this up. If Jesus gives in to temptation, we're all stuffed. But he didn't. And very clearly as that story plays out in the Judean desert, Jesus stood on the word of God, one truth, and so can we. Second truth, if Jesus conquered then, he can still conquer now in me. Hallelujah. I want to move on though to the third aspect of Jesus. You see, there's nothing that can't be forgiven. That's what happened at the Jordan. And there's nothing that can't be overcome. That's the message of the desert. And then we see Jesus launching into the beginning of his ministry. And the third major aspect I'm calling the training. Firstly, because it begins with T, and so did the others. And ever since a tutor at college said he thought that was stupid, making them all begin with the same letter, it gives me a disproportionate amount of pleasure to be able to do it. (laughs) So uh, there we are. It reveals more about me than him, I'm sure. But more importantly than that, is that this word captures something that I think is missing when we use words that we're more familiar with in this context. Words can take on meanings over time that perhaps enables them to say something different or to lose the strength of what they originally had. So this third aspect of Jesus' first year of ministry is all to do with him calling his first disciples. Jesus came to be our substitute for sure. Jesus came to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we could not die. But he also came to start a movement. A movement that would honour him. A movement that would spread the news of what he had done to the ends of the earth. But maybe more than either of those two things, it's capsulated in the fact that Jesus came to start a movement of people that would be like him. That's the language of rabbi and disciple. The discipleship challenge of Jesus asked us to face up to the question, what is it? What is this discipleship that Jesus called those first followers and Jesus calls us to today? If you were considered to be the best of the best of the best, a rabbi would invite you as a young Jewish boy to follow him, to become his disciple, which meant a profound identification with the rabbi. It meant that you would learn what the rabbi taught, but so much more. The idea of a disciple was to not only learn what the rabbi taught, but was to learn to do what the rabbi does, and even more than that, to be who the rabbi was. 
So to achieve this, a rabbi would call his disciples to follow him, to live with him, to travel with him. We would say, to do life with him. It would never be enough simply for the disciple to listen to the rabbi's teachings. Too much would be caught rather than taught. So when Jesus calls these fishermen to be his disciples, they all knew what that meant. He was calling them to learn from him, but so much more. They were to learn to do what he did. They will learn to be who he was. They were being called to become like their rabbi, to become like their master, to be like Jesus. So I find my idea of discipleship challenged in these very opening verses. Because when I think of discipleship, I'm I'm likely to think of completing a course of study, maybe of key aspects of being a Christian, or of various biblical doctrines. Please don't misunderstand me. Those things are absolutely essential. When I think of discipleship, I'm likely to think of whether in my Christian life, or whether you in your Christian life, can tick certain discipleship-type tasks. Have I read my Bible? Tick. Have I prayed? Tick. Have I been to church? Tick. Have I given my tithe? Tick. Please don't misunderstand me. Those are equally important things. Yet when Jesus talks about discipleship, when he calls his disciples to follow him, the vision is so much more. He's calling them to be like him. And the problem is this. We have all met people that can tick all the discipleship boxes and not be very much like Jesus. You see, I prefer a tick box discipleship because it's safe and it's measurable and it feels demanding, but in fact, it demands far less of me. In the end, I prefer a tick box discipleship because I, I score quite high. I do read my Bible, tick. I do pray, tick. I do come to church, double tick for me. Every day, sometimes more than once. And so my discipleship score is really high if it's that kind of discipleship. But then if it's how like Jesus am I? Well, if you don't mind, I'd rather not answer. It's a different thing altogether. And I understand why Some have therefore stopped using these words of disciple and discipleship, not because they're wrong, they were brilliant words, but because the way that we've ended up using them and understanding them has lost so much of its meaning. I find the word apprenticeship here really helpful to think through some of what Jesus was asking. Because the goal of the apprentice is to become like the master. The goal is to do what the master does. We're to be his apprentices, Nothing like The Apprentice, BBC Two, thank you very much. And unless we are doing more and more of what the Master does, and becoming more and more like the Master, then our discipleship, our apprenticeship, is not what God's calling for it to be. The goal is to be like Jesus. That's why he called us. And and Paul would write after Jesus' life, he said, this is the deal. God chose us, which is an amazing thing. And chose us for what? That we might be like Jesus. And sometimes we've swapped that for tick, tick, tick. 
So how did Jesus set about achieving? That addresses another question of the, the discipleship challenge, the how do we do it question. And we see how Jesus did it, which must be a clue as to how we should do it. He went up to a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him. He called them to be with him. Unless they were with him, they would never learn to apply what he taught. Unless they were with him, they'd never catch it, the vision, the spirit, the heartbeat of what he was all about. Unless they were with him, they'd never learn to do what he did. They'd never be able to try what they saw him trying and doing. They'd never be able to become what he became. Jesus knew that if these twelve were to become like him, it would require a high level of relational proximity, a closeness And so he called them to follow him, to be with him, to live with him, to do life with him. And as they were going along sharing life together, they would watch him closely because they were there. And he would begin to ask them to help him in what he was doing. And then after a while, he'd give them a bit more freedom to have a go themselves, and he would help them as they had a go at doing what they'd seen him doing. And then after a while, he'd give them a bit more freedom, and then they'd fail, but Jesus was close by to encourage them, to comfort them, and to pick up their inevitable failures and push them on again. Then in time, they'd take a bit more of a lead. And one day he'd say, now you go, you do what I've been doing. In many spheres of our lives, we do this. It's part of our professional training. You, you allow someone to watch you and be part of what's going on. Then you allow them to get closer to the action by helping you still do what you are doing. And then you get them more involved by letting them do a bit while you help them and eventually they do what you were doing. There's no manager here who hasn't skipped some of that process for the sake of expedience only to repent at their leisure. And we know in so many walks of life, simply teaching something is not enough. Next month, my daughter Rachel can learn to drive. Ah! No, she'll be brilliant, and I'm kind of really looking forward to it. But imagine, though, if all I did in teaching her to drive was the theory. This is the steering wheel. This is the brake and the accelerator and the clutch and the gear. I've lost some of you already, haven't I? Get a lift home. You know, you press down the clutch and into gear and you press down the accelerator, you lift the clutch a little bit, then you get the biting point. When you feel you've got the biting point, you let go of the clutch more slowly and you're off, you press the accelerator, but don't forget to look in your mirror, don't forget your position on the road, don't forget to signal and watch your speed. We could go through the theory countless times. We could have worksheets and PowerPoints. We could even do a little video on how to drive. But imagine if that was it, and then get into the car. Two things would happen. With Rachel, she would never ever have enough confidence to drive, and rightly so. It would be an absurd expectation for her to drive. If it was one of my boys for whom overconfidence is not so much of a problem, they would get in and have a go, and there'd be carnage. Either way, it wouldn't work. We can be in danger of treating discipleship a bit like that. You see, I'm told I need to pray, and I'm told how to pray, when to pray, where to pray. I'm told six points on prayer I can get from the Lord's Prayer. All great stuff. 
but largely I might still not be captivated, empowered to pray. Because I need people around me with inspiring prayer lives. I need to listen to people pouring out their heart to God. I need to watch the tears flow down their faces. His Spirit touches their hearts. I need to touch it, feel it, to see it. And being with those for whom prayer comes alive will cause me to pray in a totally different way. It doesn't matter how many times the Bible tells me I need to pray for the sick and the sick will get healed. I won't and I can't unless... I'm around people praying for the sick and seeing them healed. Then do you know what? I begin to pray for the sick and they begin to get healed. The theory is never enough. Many of us know we should talk about Jesus. Most of us don't most of the time. And I include myself in that. It's not because we don't know the theory. Most of us have heard the theory for years. Maybe all of our Christian life. What would be good to say? What it would be good not to say? Most of us have heard all kinds of tips and ideas and methods. In fact, some of us can teach those. I even know someone who's written a whole sermon series on this stuff and preached it too. But when we get out there, when we get into the car, so to speak, we're either still powerless, the theory was not enough, or with that over-sense of confidence, we give it a blast and it sometimes ends in a kind of relational carnage which just confirms to all of us that this whole sharing your faith business simply doesn't work. What I need is to be around people, rubbing shoulders with people, maybe working, living with people who are natural at sharing Jesus by the way that they live, by the things that they say, who pray comfortably and at ease, never mind who's in the room, that naturally talk about Jesus just like the weather and the car and so on. And when I'm around those people, hey, guess what? I start talking about Jesus as if it's normal. I need more than theory. The way Jesus discipled is probably the biggest clue as to how we need to do it. Highly relational, very interactive, very practical. It wasn't without teaching. Jesus preached and teach. Of course he did. But he probably spent more time with his disciples. The way we'll truly learn is to try and create an environment where we're doing it together rather than learning about it together it's another reason why I warm to the word apprenticeship because you kind of understand the deal don't you an apprentice is hands on when I think of an apprentice I don't think of a classroom I think of someone with tools or someone having a go someone walking alongside someone who's more experienced and that word apprentice captures something of what Jesus was about as he said I'm coming and I'm going to be the substitute, and I want the message of my death and resurrection to go to the ends of the earth. I want to train people to do what I do. Now, I said it in the Word. I'm going to train people to do what I do, so that when I go, I'll leave it with them. Too often, we've asked people to get in the driving seat of their Christian life, and only given them theory. Jesus challenges us to look at the model in a new way. Final discipleship challenge, then, is when do we do it? We're good at giving people jobs, roles and responsibilities and then asking what training they need. The very first thing Jesus did was to gather a group of guys and say, I'm going to give you my life. It's the best training I can give you. Come with me. Come follow me. Let's do this together. 
And so it's no accident that Paul, years later, would say, look, I'm following Christ, and, and if you want to learn what it is to follow Christ, I want you to imitate me, Paul says. I thought that was quite arrogant of him before I really understood what was going on there. And then he would pass that on to Timothy, and then Paul's last charge to Timothy was, was you make sure, Timothy, you pass it on. And then there's a list of four generations, entrusted men, reliable men, and teachers, and so on. Find it all in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy there. And so this cascading of relationships where people live so close to one another that the very life of Jesus rubs off in the day to day. We need to train people now so that we can be like Jesus now. Because as John the Baptist discovered, it's all about him for his honour and his glory. Let's pray.